0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Hello, this is Pastor Sean Cole with Understanding Christianity. I'm thankful that you're listening today. Just a programming note. Um, I'm going to be at Together for the Gospel in Louisville, Kentucky next week, so there may not be as many podcasts coming out. But if you're a listener and you want to connect at T4G, just email me or Facebook me or send me a tweet. Um, I'd love to connect with you maybe during uh, one of the meals, um, or you can just maybe come up and introduce yourself to me. Um, It's a great time of fellowship at the Together for the Gospel conference. I've gone there every year um, so, um, this will be my, I think, my sixth T4G. So, I'll be there next week. Love to see you there. Um, this was the recording of our Wednesday night podcast related to the book of Hebrews. So, this is the final session on Hebrews. I do an overview of the entire book. And so, it's been a joy to to do this Um, teaching on Wednesday night. So thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope to see you at T4G. If not, may God bless you and make His face shine upon you and may you have a great day in the Lord. Well, we're going to finish Hebrews tonight and I felt like I kind of rushed last week to get through the eight, I think it was eight marks of, uh, I did rush, yeah, Um, eight marks of a faithful church and we really ended up with the whole idea of Elders and leaders, um, and then praying for your leaders. And the big question that I ended up with last week was, um, how in the world are we ever going to be able to do what God has called us to do in all these things that the book of Hebrews has called us to do? And the answer comes in the final benediction. And so a benediction is usually a closing prayer. And so this is a prayer, and those of you that are going through the 30-day prayer journey, this is one of the prayers that's going to be later on. I think it's like the ninth one, so like towards the end of this month, you'll, you'll get to this as far as the prayer that we're praying. But let's read um, Hebrews 13, 20 through, through 21. This is, the, this is the way that he really ends up the entire letter and it really really encapsulates a lot of the themes of the entire book of Hebrews so is everybody there at the very end of the book Hebrews chapter 13 starting in verse 20 now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Okay. This is a prayer. This is a benediction. It's a closing prayer. And so let's look at um, the invocation or the address. Um, It's it's really there in verse 20, the reason why he's praying Verse 20 is not necessarily the request. Verse 20 is how he's addressing God, how he's calling upon God before he gets to, to, to verse 21, which is the actual request. But the first thing he says there is he says, Now may the God of peace. Literally, in the in the original language, this is the God who brings us peace. Now let's just stop and talk about peace. Are we talking about, hey man, rule peace? I got a peaceful easy feeling about this. What is the peace that God brings to us? Let's think about our salvation for a moment. Before we were saved, what was our state before God? Were we at peace with him? No, well, the Bible says we were enemies. We needed to be reconciled. So when he's called the God of peace or the God who brings peace, this is more of an objective peace that comes through a right standing with God through Jesus. Um, Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And being justified by faith is being declared righteous on account of Christ. We have peace on account of Christ, faith in Christ, uh, the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14 But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Really, in the context of Ephesians, he's talking about the Jew Gentile um, conflict that had been going on for years. But notice, interestingly, Paul says Jesus Christ is our peace. He made peace through the blood, He is our peace. Come on in, Betty. All right. <laughs> So the first thing that he addresses here in this prayer is the God who brings peace, brings us into a right relationship with himself through Jesus. Now, what did God do? What's the second thing he says there? Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. He focuses on the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead. So He's the God who brings peace, but it's also the, the way that we can approach God in this prayer is because of the resurrection of Christ. Um, Romans ten nine, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And then probably the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So he's the God who brings peace objectively through Christ. He's the God who raised Jesus from the dead. So it's focusing on the resurrection. And then he calls calls upon Jesus, the Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. So Jesus is our great shepherd. Now, it's interesting. Nowhere in the book of Hebrews has he ever called Jesus the shepherd until here at the very end. What does it mean that Jesus is the shepherd? Jesus referred to himself as the shepherd in John 10, 14 through 15. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, why is he a good shepherd? He, the shepherd protects the, and takes care. Of the sheep. Yes, he lays down. Yeah, he protects the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He dies for us. First Peter two twenty five, you were straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd, and overseer of your souls. Remember last week when we talked about overseer, an elder, a pastor. This passage of Scripture is interesting because it tells us that Jesus is our senior pastor. hes You'll hear me say that a lot here at manuel that I'm not the senior pastor of this church. Jesus is the senior pastor. He's the chief shepherd. He's the overseer of our souls. He's the good shepherd that protects us. We're to keep our eyes on Jesus. So it's the God of peace, objectively through Christ. It's through the resurrection of Christ Jesus is the great shepherd who laid down his life, and then he ties everything together with this whole theme that we've seen throughout the entire book of Hebrews, he, by the blood of the eternal covenant. Jesus shed his blood as the mediator of the new covenant. We see in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Now, we'll go back and look at these passages of Scripture, but in Hebrews chapters 9, 10, 11, 12, and 13, it all talks about Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant. Okay? So this is the address. How often do you pray to God this way? God, you are the God who brings me peace. You're the God who raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, you're my great shepherd. And Jesus, you're the mediator of the new covenant. I come to you today in prayer. Or how often do we say, dear God, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with saying, Dear God, but this is very specific in how we address God. That's the address. He's the God of peace. He's the one who rose Jesus from the dead. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, and He shed His blood by the eternal covenant. Now, what's the actual request that He's asking? This is the very final part of the book. What's the request? He's preached this sermon. Remember, the book of Hebrews is a sermon. So this is the very end of His sermon. What's His prayer for His congregation? Look at the key word there, the request. Equip. Equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing. So there's a lot of requests there, but really it's the equipping. God promises to equip us with everything we need. We're not left to our own devices to try and figure things out. We are never called to live the Christian life in the power of our own flesh. Now, how does God what is the primary one of the primary ways that God equips us? Do his word? Do the, the Holy Spirit? Prayer? Prayer. All those are great and all those are, are perfect, all those are good. But interestingly, one of the primary ways God has chosen to equip the saints is through leaders, teachers, pastors. Now, Paul tells us, he uses the same Greek word there for equip. The writer of Hebrews says he's, that God would equip you. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 Paul writes these words, talking about Jesus. Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, leaders, to do what? To equip. Equip, same, same word here in Hebrews. To equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now, let me tell you what this interesting Greek word equip refers to. So I'm going to give you like all the different meanings that this word means. I have to get my little sheet here. It was used in medical practices, so it was a medical term in some cases, and it was used to um, set a limb, a set a broken bone. So if you broke a bone, the doctor would come and equip you. <laughs> what does that mean? He'd set it and put it back so that it would heal. So it was a restoration. So it was a medical term. Okay? It was also used of furnishing a room. Making sure that a room had what it needed to function. equipment. Equipment, okay. It was also used in the preparation of a garment. And I don't know exactly if they had irons back then or what they did, but to prepare a garment. Okay, it appears 13 times in the New Testament. It can mean to restore or mend fishing nets, so this is kind of an elastic word in the Greek text, depending on context. So it appears 13 times in the New Testament. It can mean to restore mend fishing nets, to restore a fallen brother, to prepare, to put in order, complete, furnish, to perfect, to instruct. It refers to the preparation of the church to becoming mature. So whatever word you want to think, it's a pretty comprehensive term for Making sure you're healthy, you're functional, you're prepared, and you're ready. That you're equipped for what? Go back to the text. Everything, everything good that you may do what? Do His will. So His final prayer for us is that we would be equipped, we would be furnished, we would be prepared, we would be trained, we would be ready... Healthy to do God's will. Now, I could easily say to you, just go out and do God's will. And you'd walk out of here saying, all right, I can do God's will. And you'd get really frustrated if you did it in your own flesh. What does he tell us there? He doesn't finish. God's going to equip you with everything good to do His will. What does he say there? Working in us that which is pleasing. So part of the equipping to do God's will is the Holy Spirit working in us to do His will. The best parallel passage to this, I think, is in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. If you just had verse 12 by itself, it would be very works-oriented, man-centered, man-effort. If you just had verse 13 by itself, it would be passive and there would be no human activity. You got both of them together to show you how it works. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what are we to do? Work out our salvation. Do God's will. Obey. Well, thanks. Uh, Okay. How am I going to do that? Am I left to myself? No. What's verse 13 say? For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now let's God works in you to will and work for his good pleasure. That's Philippians 2:13. What does Hebrews here say? He's equipping you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Same type of thing here. Okay? So here's the beauty of this request. God works in us so that we will actually please him in obedience to his will god will give us the power of his spirit to do to do obey should be to obey to obey to do obey to obey so we are saved by grace at our initial salvation but we are sustained by grace as we live the christian life do we ever ever get to a point where we don't need god's grace you ever get the point where you're like, okay, I can do this Christian thing on my own. How long are you going to last? About that, long. About that long? Okay. Some of us even shorter than that. Now, let's look at the doxology, which is the very last thing. Normally, a doxology is a um, glory forever and ever, amen, type thing. That's how it ends. Through, how is this all done? Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. So this equipping comes through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs all glory and honor forever. Amen. So what should our prayer be as a church? If this is the way Hebrews ends, and this is a letter to a church from a pastor, and we're kind of spending this month looking at prayer and praying the prayers of the Bible, what would be a good model prayer for us to pray? Right here. Something like this. Father, In your sovereign grace, through the blood of Christ, would you please equip us with everything we need to do your will by the power of the Spirit to please you as a faithful church full of faithful people? Do you pray that prayer? Are you praying for the equipping of your brothers and sisters? Are you praying that we would be doing God's will? Are you praying that God would be at work in us? Just a thought. Now, here's the final greetings. At the end of the... I don't have any notes for the final greetings because there's not much to tell you. It's his final greetings. Verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. Stop. I I, I didn't have this in the notes, but I will tell you. There, that word of exhortation that he has there in verse 22, that is probably strong evidence in the original language that this is a sermon. That was usually what was used. Now... Back in those days, I may go on a tangent here. Is that okay if I go on a little bit of a tangent? Okay. Let's, okay, so here we go. What was the church in Jesus' time? The synagogue. What was the synagogue? Okay. Let's way back and go back into Christian, let's go back into Bible history. Back when Israel in the Old Testament split into Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom, The southern kingdom was left. They were taken into Babylonian exile. Nebuchadnezzar came in and what did he do? He destroyed the temple, carted everybody out. They were out for 70 years. Now, if you're a good Jew and you can't go to the temple because it's been destroyed and you've been deported, what are you going to do to worship? You're going to have to develop some system of worship to keep the people taught and trained in worship. So that's where the synagogues developed. Synagogues, you had to have 10 Jewish men in a city to be able to have a synagogue. So a synagogue was really a local church. It was a local church, quote unquote, with a local pastor. And the local pastor was called a rabbi. Okay, So the rabbi... He was usually a learned man. He was a godly man. He was an elder, usually older, wiser, knew his scriptures. He would lead the worship in the synagogue. Now, you may ask, what did they do in the synagogue? Well, here's what they would do in the synagogue. They would gather, and they would sing. What would they sing usually? Chris Tomlin, right? No, I'm just joking. No. <laughs> Psalms. Then there would be a reading, usually from the Torah. Then there would be an offering. Then there would be another maybe scripture reading. There would be prayer. And then the service would end with the rabbi giving a word of exhortation which was usually an exposition of another part of the Old Testament does that look pretty similar to how we do church we feel right at home home, wouldn't we we're singing we're reading we're giving tithes and offerings we're praying and then the, the, the the rabbi the pastor gets up and preaches from the Bible that's what happened in the synagogues okay That's the way the Jews worshipped. Now, go to Luke chapter 4. This is a big tangent. That's all right. (laughs) we got all the time in the world. We're kind of done with Hebrews. We're going to go back and review that. But I want to talk about this word of exhortation to show you this was a sermon that he was preaching. That's the whole point. This is a sermon, a word of exhortation. In Luke chapter 4, Um. go to verse 14 Jesus has just been tempted by the devil for 40 days in the wilderness and he comes out in verse 14 Jesus Luke 4.14 Luke 4.14 let me write that up here Luke yeah we're in Luke chapter 4 starting in verse 14 He came to Nat. Sorry, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. What was Jesus doing? Teaching Teaching where? In In what? In the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was a preacher. Contrary to what a lot of people think, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit to go into the local church and to preach. So, sometimes they'd have traveling rabbis that would come. So, Jesus practiced preaching and teaching. And interestingly enough, Jesus could preach his own words because he was Jesus. But here in Luke chapter 4, he chooses to do an expository sermon of the Old Testament scriptures in a very profound way. So let's see what Jesus does when he goes into the synagogue. Verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now let's just stop right there. What does that tell you about Jesus? Yeah, he didn't watch football on Sundays. He didn't watch the donkey races or whatever it was. It was his custom, his habit, his practice to be in church on Sabbath. Now, if it was good enough for Jesus, did he need to go to church? No, he didn't need to go to church. Why did he go to church? He went to church so he could be with God's people, so he could sit under good teaching, so he could worship, so he could hear the Torah, so he could be part of the, the, the synagogue. And so he stands up to read. This is the second reading. Probably the rabbi that was there had already read the Torah. They'd already sung songs, offerings. This is probably the second reading, which was followed by a sermon. So he hands the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. This is verse 17. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Okay, so what's Jesus doing? He's reading from the Bible. Isaiah, providentially, it just opens, it providentially just opens, like, just opens this page. Okay, what is he reading from? He's reading from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Jesus reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim, preach, good news, the gospel, to the poor... He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay. Now, those that were sitting there were probably just thinking, okay, he's, he's reading us. We're familiar with this Old Testament passage. It's probably talking about the year of Jubilee because it's talking about the year of the Lord's favor. We know this is a servant psalm from Isaiah that's prophesying about some future Messiah that's going to come and be anointed, that's going to proclaim the gospel. Okay, Jesus, you know, we've heard this thousand times. Here's the kicker. Look at verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, "Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing." What's he saying? That scripture is talking about me. I'm the fulfillment of that. Now, can any person just stand up and say, "I'm the fulfillment of the Bible"? Like if I stood up here today and read the Bible and said, "This is talking about me," I'm the fulfillment. Nobody can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Your will stone. But you'll still. They want now. That's what happened. Keep going. He began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Most scholars believe when it says he began to say, he probably, we don't have it recorded, but he probably went on to preach an exposition of this passage of scripture, like what you would hear in a normal sermon. Taking it verse by verse, talking about it, bringing the implications home, uh, you know, basically p- telling the people what it meant. And then verse 22, they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Isn't this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Okay, he's going to use some sermon illustrations here and some, some sayings. Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb Physician, heal yourself. What well, we've heard you did at Capernaum, do you do here in your hometown as well? And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. What's he doing now? He's appealing to another Old Testament story from the scriptures that talked about how God dealt with the Gentile. Okay, Elijah and the famine. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath and the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Gentile woman God ministered to. Sermon illustration number one, to get his point home. Sermon illustration number two, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed by, but only Naaman the Syrian. Two sermon illustrations to say, listen, in the Old Testament, I'm giving you two examples of where God showed grace to Gentiles and not the Jews. Now, their tone changes because when they heard Jesus say, I've come to preach the good news to the poor. I've come to, to bring salvation. The Jews are thinking, bring it on, Jesus. We, we deserve this. This is, this, is our, this is our history. This is what we deserve. You know, c- come and, you know, we want to hear about salvation. But then Jesus says, now, wait a minute. The salvation is not just for you as Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. Oh, these are gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. Look what happens next. Verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with Wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. But don't ask me how that happened. Okay. So what turned into a wonderful expository sermon turned in almost to wanting to stone him. Okay, now I'm telling you this to show you that, number one, the synagogue worship was very similar to the way we worship. Jesus went to the synagogue, as was his custom. Jesus preached expository sermons in the synagogue. Now, when you get to the book of Acts, do you think you may see Paul doing the same thing? Okay, go to Acts chapter 13. I wish I had notes for this, but I don't. Um, Acts chapter 13. Paul and Barnabas go into the synagogue At Antioch, Pisidia. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. But if you go to Acts 13, this is after Paul's been saved. This is the first missionary journey. He and Barnabas were sent off. And let's just pick up in verse 13. Acts 13, 13. Everybody there? Acts 13, 13. We're not going to look at the whole chapter, but I just want to show you that Paul basically did the same thing Jesus did. Okay? Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came into Antioch and Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. So where are they going? The synagogue, okay? So what's going on in the synagogue? We've already seen it. There's singing of Psalms. There's Torah readings. The rabbi's probably going to get up and give a word of exhortation. Okay, here's what happens. Look at verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the first reading, the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. What are they asking Paul to do? Give a word of encouragement, i.e., Paul, we want you to preach a sermon. That's what it was called. It was called a word, a logos of parakletos, a word of encouragement to the people. When it says word of exhortation, word of exhortation same, same word of exhortation, word of encouragement, i.e., a. when you think about that, think about a biblical sermon. And then you've got Paul's sermon. Basically in verse 16, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, and you got his whole sermon. We won't read it there, but from verse 17 all the way down to um, verse 41 is his sermon. And it's exposition after exposition of Old Testament texts, all talking about Jesus. Now it's interesting what the people when the people how did the, people have been sitting in synagogue year after year, sermon after sermon, and they're hearing, okay, I'm hearing the dry rabbi preach about these Old Testament texts and these expository sermons are just really so exciting. I mean, they're, they're probably sitting there. Paul comes in and says, okay, let me preach to you from the Bible, but let me preach to you Jesus from the Bible and preach the gospel to you. Notice their response to, to Paul's preaching. Look at verse 42. When you, every pastor's dream. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told of to them the next Sabbath. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city had gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. And if you go down, well, let's just stop right there. The people begged Paul and Barnabas to come back. Why? They never heard preaching like that before, that took the Old Testament text and preached Christ and the gospel to them. They were hungry, and God used Paul's preaching in the synagogue. So different responses. What was the response to Jesus when he preached? First it was, wow, this is pretty interesting. Okay, I think we want to kill him second one was Paul preaches the people like wow we've never heard this we want to hear it people get saved the rulers are like we want to kill him so no matter what happens and I've said this when I preach the book of Acts when Paul went into town either two one of two things happened riot or revival those are your only two options with Paul there's going to be a riot breaking out or there's going to be a revival now what I want to show you there though is Paul gave a word of exhortation, or a word of encouragement. He preached a sermon. Now, with that little side note, let's go back to Hebrews. At the very end of the book, this is where most scholars, and I actually believe this myself, believe that the book of Hebrews is an actual sermon because of what he says there in verse 22. Hebrews 13, 22. We're back in Hebrews. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my what? Word of exhortation. Bear with my sermon I've been preaching this whole time. For I have written to you briefly. He's writing them a sermon. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. So he basically, after he gives this exhortation, or after he gives this prayer, he says, listen guys, I know it's been a long sermon. You've done well. You've sat through it well. I want to come see you. Grace be with you. Greet everybody in the church. Timothy should be released. Now, why I don't think that Paul is the author of Hebrews. Some people think Paul's the author of Hebrews. I don't necessarily believe that. Um, For one of two reasons. It seems like the writer of Hebrews was not an original eyewitness to Christ but he got the information secondhand. But notice what he calls Timothy there in verse 23, our brother Timothy. Paul almost never referred to Timothy as his brother. How did he refer to Timothy? Nice. My son, my son in the faith. So probably some internal evidence that this was probably not Paul. Spurgeon and others believe it was Paul. Again, when we started this whole journey, we don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Okay. Now, here's what I want to do in our last time together. I want us to read the book of Hebrews in one sitting. Okay, we've looked at this since September. And you may have forgotten all the things that we talked about. But this was meant to be read in one sitting. So we're going to read it. And I'm probably not going to stop. I'm just going to read it. Like you would, like this is what would happen in the church in those days. A courier or somebody would bring the letter, the church would gather, and the local pastor or elders would stand up and they would read the letter to the entire congregation in one sitting. That's how they first received the letter. So we're going to pretend like we are the congregation of the Hebrews. We're sitting in our house church, maybe in Rome. This letter has come to us. It's from our beloved pastor. We're not sure where he is. He could be in jail. He could be martyred. But he's writing us this sermon. One of the elders stands up and reads it, and we're going to listen to it in one sitting. Okay? Okay. Now that we've broken it down for month by month by month, we're going to look at the big picture, okay? So you guys ready? Here we go. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, to whom also He created the world. He, the Son, is the radiance of the glory of God. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels' angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions." Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who to inherit salvation? I'm just going to stop real quick because in verse 13, Psalm 110, verse 1, that is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it's quoted over and over again in the book of Hebrews. Sit at my right hand. It's the whole image of Jesus being at the right hand of God with the enemies under His feet. Okay? I said I wasn't going to stop, but Don't hold me to it. All right, so chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention, play close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. I'm just going to stop. Okay, all right, I can't can't just read it. So much for that exercise. Some of you are like, oh, man, I thought he was going to get through it. This is warning number one. (laughs) I know, this is warning number one. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift. Remember, we talked about drifting away, that slow, imperceptible drift. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. Again, internal evidence that it's probably not an eyewitness. Those who heard the gospel firsthand gave it to to them, including the author. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, actually in the Psalms, what is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower while than, than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. he is able to help those who are being tempted. Stop real quick. This is the first time he introduces Jesus as the faithful high priest, which is the, who Jesus really is in the entire book of Hebrews. He's the faithful high priest. Okay, chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, over God's house as a son and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope therefore as the Holy Spirit says today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion or the day of testing in the wilderness where your father's put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart. They've not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's warning number two. Take care that you don't have an evil... Heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But, this is good encouragement, exhort one another, how many days? Every Every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we've come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold Our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. As God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. This long section in chapters 3 and 4. How many times does He say, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. Today, 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 today. And He goes back to that generation in the wilderness that for 40 years did what? They disobeyed. They died in the wilderness. And God said, in my wrath, they're not going to enter the promised land. Now, if they did not enter the promised land because of unbelief, He's saying, how much worse is it for you to enter, not enter heaven because of your unbelief? So today believe so he's being really evangelistic here in his sermon to a church because he knows in his audience there are going to be some people who are faking it who are playing around who aren't truly saved and he's trying to warn them today 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 today's the day Uh, don't don't fail to enter the to enter heaven okay let's go to the end of chapter four because this kind of starts a new unit of thought this whole idea of the high priest since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, let's, that's another theme here, guys. What's another theme? Hold fast our confession to the end. Hold to the gospel. Hold, hold strong to what we believe. Hold on to the faith. Hold on to our, to our Savior. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, now, before we start chapter 5, remember what I said. You guys aren't waking up in the middle of the night, Wondering why Jesus is not from the tribe of Levi, but from the tribe of Judah. You don't, you guys aren't worried about that, are you? How can Jesus be a priest if he's not from the tribe of Levi? If he's not from Aaron's lineage, he's from Judah. You guys aren't bothered by that. They were bothered by that because in their Old Testament history, they're thinking only the priests came from Aaron and the Levites. Judah, from Judah came the... Kings, So why aren't you talking about Jesus being a king? It would make more sense if you'd say he's a king because he's from Judah, but you keep talking about him being this high priest, but he's not from the Levites. What gives? He's going to answer that. Again, you guys don't lose sleep over that because it's not an issue that you're burdened with. It was a big issue for them. Okay, chapter 5. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, "...to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed." By him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I'm going to open the door because it's getting hot. That's not part of the scripture. That's uninspired scripture. (laughs) And he said in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In these days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And at this point, you're probably thinking, who's Melchizedek? And why do we care? And the writer says, I'm going to get there. You can't handle it right now, but we'll get there. That's exactly what he says in verse 11. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain. Why? Why? you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. I want to tell you about Melchizedek. I really do. But you guys aren't there yet. You're still on milk when you should be on solid food. You're, you're sluggish in your hearing. So let me give you a few more warnings here before I get to Melchizedek. I'm going to give you a strong warning. Chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God and instructions about washings. Remember, that was probably referring to baptism. The laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Here's warning number three in the book of Hebrews. For it is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now remember what we said here i 'm going to stop real quick because this is a, a difficult portion of the book of hebrews he 's not teaching that you can lose your salvation. What he is saying is that if you play around and you said a prayer and you went to church and you went on a mission trip and you heard good preaching and you even maybe performed miracles like Judas, but you never were truly saved. And then at one point later, you obstinately, stubbornly, wholeheartedly reject Christ stubbornly. He says it's impossible to bring you back. Not because you lost your salvation, but you never had it in the first place. Now, that is not committing specific sins. It is a wholehearted, obstinate, vehement, heels in the ground, rejection of Christ and the gospel. Can a true Christian do that? No. Why do I know that? Because in verse 9 he says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we, sure, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I'm giving you a warning. I'm not talking necessarily about you, but I'm talking about there's a group of people that could possibly fall away and get to the point where they can never be brought back to repentance. Don't ask me how to wrap my mind around all that. We just have a scripture there that that gives a strong warning. Verse 10, chapter 6, for God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? God made a covenant to Abraham. And that would have been good enough because it was God's word. But what did God do? God swore an oath on top of his word. So God swore a double oath. And you remember that ceremony where they cut the two animals in half and God passed through in the flaming pot? God did this double covenant for Abraham to to show him infallibly that God would give him his promises. And in the same way, The writer's saying God can be counted on to follow through on His promises for us. We have a steadfast anchor. We can count on God. He has gone, uh, He's going to be true to His words. Why is He going to be true to His words? Because He sent Jesus as Melchizedek. Okay. What in the world does Melchizedek have to do with it? All right, before we get to Melchizedek, because I know we've already gone through this, but let's go through it again. What were the three offices in the Old Testament of leaders? There were prophets, there were priests, and there were kings. Was there any one person in the Old Testament that held all three offices? Nope. Well, yeah. Was there a prophet that was a priest? Yeah. Samuel was a prophet who was a priest. Was there a prophet who was a king? Not really. Was there a king who acted as a priest? Well, David did at one point. Saul did, and he got in trouble. He lost his kingship. Okay. There was only one person in the Old Testament that fulfilled both the role of a priest and a king. And this was before Aaron. This was back in the times of Abraham. It was this mysterious figure called Melchizedek. He was a priest of the Most High God, and he was the king of Salem. So, Jesus, Melchizedek is a forerunner of Jesus in the sense that there was one person, one man in the Old Testament who was a priest-king. He ruled as king, and he served as a priest of God. And it wasn't Aaron. It was Melchizedek. So what the writer's going to argue is that Jesus did not come from the lineage of Aaron. The way that Jesus can be a priest and a king is that there was a guy in the Old Testament who did that. It's Melchizedek. And he was a forerunner of what Jesus would be as the priest and king. Now again, this is confusing because we're not that familiar with the Old Testament. We're not burdened by these things. But let's dive into chapter 7 and hear what he has to say about Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek king... "...of Salem, which later became Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God," so he's a king priest, "...met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He's the prince of peace. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life." But resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Through these also are descended from Abraham." But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case by one whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All that to say... (laughs) Melchizedek is the shadowy figure that shows up in Genesis. He's a priest, he's a king, Abraham paid tithes, and the point is all this happened before the Levitical priesthood. So the Melchizedek priesthood is actually a precursor to the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood that the Jews' whole sacrificial system was bound up in. And so now he's going to compare Jesus to Melchizedek. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, and we know it was not, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar." For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Judah was not the priestly tribe. It was the Levites. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For as witness of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand... A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Hardest section of Hebrews, I think, right there. Chapter 7. Don't ask me to understand all the intricacies. Melchizedek, let's move on, okay? Verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Remember I said verse 25 was one of the key verses that I really think is an important verse in Hebrews? Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Powerful verse there. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself. What did the priests have to do? Sacrifice for themselves, sacrifice to their family, sacrifice for the people. Jesus didn't have to do that because he was perfect. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now, the point we are saying is this. I like when the pastor gives this point. The point we're saying is this. This is his point. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in a true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifice. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See then that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Remember our key word in Hebrews is better. For if that first covenant had been faultless, faultless, there would have not been occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, now this is the, the biggest portion of scripture quoted in, in the book of Hebrews, and it's the new covenant passage in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, Not like the old covenant, the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Remember the three things we saw here? Number one, I will put my law into their minds and write it on their hearts. The whole idea of regeneration, the law being written in our hearts, the new heart. Number two, I will be their God and they will be my people. And they shall not teach each one of his neighbor, each one his brother, knowing, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And here's the third promise, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, we talked about this. In the old covenant sacrificial system, day of atonement, what sins were the only sins that could be atoned for? Unintentional sins. Sins of ignorance. If you committed a high-handed sin or an intentional sin, it was a death penalty or possibly a city of refuge. So the Old Testament covenant could never completely cover sins and get to the root of the problem. But Jesus has come along and He's a better covenant because He gets to the root of our sin problem. Okay, Chapter 9, we're going to start talking about the Day of Atonement and what all happened on the Day of Atonement with the Holy of Holies and everything. So here we go, chapter 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness. What was the earthly place of holiness? The tabernacle, the Holy of Holies. For a tent, a tabernacle, was prepared. The first section in which there was the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence, it's called the holy place, so this is the outer place. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies. In there you had the golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak in detail. You Go back to Exodus and read all about them. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. That's the day of atonement. The high priest goes in there one day, he takes the blood in from the the, um, the heifers and the bulls, and then he has the two goats, the scapegoat and the one goat, and he sacrifices, but the unintentional sins. Verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What could they not do? They could not cleanse the conscience. They could not get to the root of the problem. It was only a band-aid once a year to cover sin, and only external sins and only unintentional sins. It could never get to the root. Okay, The Old Testament system. How does the New Testament system with Christ and the New Covenant work? Let's keep going. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands that is not of this creation he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves but by means of his own blood thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of heifers sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year. Make perfect those who draw near. The Old Testament could never do that. It couldn't make perfect. It couldn't cleanse perfectly. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you do not desire, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. At this point, as we're reading this, you should be so overburdened and so, it should be so repetitious that the old covenant cannot, 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 cannot. It can't do it. It can't do it. It's repeated. It can't do it. You're like, okay, we get the point. And that's the point. The point is to get the point that the Old Testament could never fully do it. But when Jesus came as the guarantor of the new covenant, he did it once for all, took away our sin, and made us right with God. Now he gets to some exhortation. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, how do we respond to the cross? How do we respond to the sacrifice of Jesus? What do we do? Here's the first thing we do. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Second thing we do, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. What well, the third thing we do, let us not or let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay? Now, here's the, here's the fourth warning in the book of Hebrews. If we go on sinning, what word do you have there? Deliberately. Deliberately. After receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God, But, recall the former days, when after you were light and you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What is faith? I'm glad you asked. That's why we have chapter 11. Now faith... Though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he I am. I'm giving you a little bit of translation there. And that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, by faith, he went to live in the land of promises, in the foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even she, when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith. Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he is looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood, so that the destroyer, the firstborn, might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land but the Egyptians when they attempted to do the same were drowned by faith the walls of Jericho fell after they'd been encircled for seven days by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies what more shall I say for time would fail me Others suffered mockings and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves and on the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And if you've forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, my son, do not regard lightly the Lord's discipline. Do not be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. that no one is sexually immoral and holy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We've got to go fast here. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice, who's made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, "I tremble with fear." But you've come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not, this is the final warning. See that you do not refuse him who speaking for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them, On earth, how much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven? At that time, His voice shook the earth. But now He's promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison, And those mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of the animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. Therefore let us go to Him outside the camp and bear the reproach He endured. For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you, the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you sooner. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly... I hate to see what a long thing would be. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see if he comes. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Thus reads the words of the living God in the book of Hebrews. Thanks be to God.